Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Orphanage for Sick Children. Saturday, October 12th. It writhed and squirmed like a mess of wriggling worms in a flower pot. Blue, glowing worms all struggling to escape. The other kids were afraid of it. Everyone was crying, and little Bess peed herself. Back at the start of the journey, Everyone squealed and held their noses whenever someone couldn't hold it anymore and had to go onto the cold iron floor of the train car. But by the time we got to the breach, it had happened enough times that everything stank already and everyone was much too afraid of the glowing portal to take much notice. The others are all scaredy cats. The breach was beautiful. I could see it in the distance through the window for a long while as we got closer and closer. Then the tracks turned, and we started heading straight for it. Now I can hear it crackling, growing louder and louder. I can hear it over the crying and screaming of the other kids. It feels like when there's a real bad thunderstorm coming. Sometimes you can just feel it coming, you know. Joshua says it's a prison train that we're on. One of the ones they used to take away all the criminals. He says he's seen this exact train going into the tunnel that leads to Gorham County Jail and come out again loaded with prisoners. He says he's seen them reaching out between the bars, like they're trying to grab hold of all the sunshine and freedom they can. His dad told him that the criminals were being taken away to Malifaux to get what was coming to them. But these other children don't seem like criminals. They seem like stupid, scared little orphans. I think I'm the only real criminal here. Sunday, October 13th. 
Mrs Birchbank and Mr Grievous met us at the station. Mr Grievous had a long length of chain with him. At first I thought he was going to tie us up with it, but he didn't do that. He untangled the chain and stretched it out into a long line. Then Mrs Birchbark told us to line up along the chain, and she counted us and ticked our names off her list. We all had to hold on to the chain so that we didn't get separated while we marched to the orphanage. We were like a big, long snake, each of us holding on to that chain for dear life. Don't let go, said Mrs Birchbank, or you'll get lost. And Malifaux is not kind to lost little children. We wound our way through the station and out into the narrow, twisted streets. Mrs Birchbark walked fast and she had long legs, so some of the littler kids had to run to keep up. Little Bess was in front of me, holding the chain with one hand and picking her nose with the other. She's always got a finger up there, especially when she's nervous. At one point she tripped on a broken cobble and skinned her knee. The kids in front of her didn't see, so they just kept going, but even then she didn't let go of the chain. She was too scared to let go. She didn't want to get lost and swallowed up by the city, so she got dragged along a little way before she found her feet again. After that she began to cry, and kept crying for most of the way to the orphanage, even though Mr Grievous shouted at her to shut up. You could see why they needed the chain. The streets were all a hustle and bustle, with odd-looking folk hurrying this way and that. If we hadn't been holding on to that chain, it would have been easy as anything to get separated in the crowds. But we reached the orphanage eventually, without anyone getting lost. Malifaux Orphanage for Sick Children is a big wooden building. Everything's a bit crooked, and it's full of creaky boards and broken windows that let in the cold air. We all have to sleep on dusty mattresses on the floor of a big drafty dormitory. I don't know why we're here. Only a few of us are sick. But in a place like this, it shouldn't be long until we all catch something. There are some scratchy blankets that are full of bugs, and Joshua caught a millipede that he keeps in an old jar. Sometimes he takes it out to scare the girls. He thinks he's tough. But he doesn't know what tough is. I don't think he's ever done anything really bad. Not like me. I think we should build a fire to keep warm, but the other kids are all too scared to try something like that. Don't be stupid, Iggy, said Joshua. You'll burn the whole place down. I want to punch him when he calls me stupid, but then the shaking comes back, and I can hardly control my muscles, let alone throw a punch. My hands feel like they're on fire. I found a loose board where I'm going to hide this journal so it doesn't get stolen. Now if only Bess would stop crying I could get some sleep. I wish she'd stop picking her nose too. It's disgusting. I'll write again tomorrow. Tuesday, October 15th. Dr Lorcas came today to give us our shots. Mrs Birchbark made us all wait outside the infirmary door and Dr Lorcas called us in one at a time. Joshua was the first to go in and he came out crying, clutching his arm. 
everyone thinks Joshua is a tough kid. So after that, they were all scared. Bess was crying before she even went in, of course. One by one, each of us went into the office, and each kid came out, bawling their eyes out. What a bunch of wimps. When it was my turn, I tried to look bored to show I wasn't scared. Dr. Lorcas was sitting there wearing a long grey coat. He's an odd-looking fellow. He wears a crazy monocle over one eye, with wires and tubes sticking out of it. His other eye seems to bulge from his head like he's got no eyelids. He held a strange thing in his hand. It was a long, sharp needle with a glass ball at one end, full of some sort of nasty-looking black liquid. It reminded me of the body of a spider, all bulbous and full of venom. Now, son, said Dr. Lorcas, even though I'm not his son. This might hurt a little bit, but it will keep you from getting sick. So be good and don't move. Mr. Grievous was there too. He grabbed my arm and held me still while Dr. Lorcas jabbed me with the needle. It was true. It did hurt, but I didn't cry. I'm tougher than Joshua. I'm the toughest kid here, and I want everyone to know it. So I came out dried-eyed and grinning, and Dr. Lorcas said what a good boy I was. What does he know? Everyone is feeling sick tonight, and we're all having bad dreams. I keep being woken up by kids screaming in fear. Even I had a bad dream earlier tonight. That's why I'm writing this now. I didn't want to forget it. I dreamed that I was walking in a tunnel underground, when suddenly something grabbed me from behind. A dark thing made out of shadows and smoke. I fought to escape, but I wasn't strong enough. Then I saw a huge rat crawling towards me. He had big red eyes and huge fangs that dripped with black poison. It moved slowly, but there was nothing I could do to get away. It bit me in the arm, right at the place where Dr. Lorcas gave me that jab. And when I woke up, that spot was burning and stinging like anything. Thursday, October 17th. They keep us locked up in the orphanage like criminals. We're never allowed to go out. Every day, Mr. Grievous takes us down to the workshop, where we spend all day making tiny parts for clockwork machines. I guess Mr. Grievous' hands are too big and clumsy to do the jobs himself, and that's why he needs little kids to do them. I bet that's why he runs an orphanage in the first place. None of us know what we're making in the workshop. We each just do our own little job over and over again, all day, every day. When the contraption gets to the end of the line, it looks a bit like a pocket watch, but it doesn't have a face or any hands, just a lot of tiny machinery inside a brass case. Gord is last in line. It's his job to pack the machines in wooden boxes, with sawdust to cushion them. We make hundreds of these things every day. Mr. Grievous says they're parts that go inside much larger machines. He says that there's something called the M&S Union, and they pay good money for these things. But us kids never get any of the money. He never pays us for our work in the basement. He says we should be thankful to get food and shelter and medicine. The food is slop, and a fat lot of good the medicine does. Some of the kids are getting sicker and sicker. Simon has a high fever and can't stop vomiting. 
It stinks in the dormitory. Tobias went to tell Mrs. Birchbark about it, but she just told him to mind his own business. Saturday, November 3rd. They took Simon away today. He was pale as a ghost and too weak to stand. Mr. Grievous had to carry him out. Nobody knows where they took him, but we know he's somewhere in the orphanage. Because sometimes, when it's quiet, we can hear him wailing and groaning. Joshua told Bess it was Simon's ghost just to scare her. The sounds echo out the grate in the dormitory wall. It must open onto the chimney, because sometimes smoke comes out of that grate and sometimes a weak heat. At first we took it in turns sleeping in front of the grate, but when my turn was over, I didn't give up the spot and nobody tried to make me. I don't like the cold, and they're all too scared to challenge me. It's getting colder and colder in the house, but no one wants to take Simon's blankets in case they contain whatever illness is killing him. Plus they're all covered in puke. Mikey is showing signs of the sickness too. He has big black spots on his arm where he took the needle. Some of the kids are saying that those shots that Dr. Lorcas gave us caused the sickness. But Benjamin says shots are supposed to prevent sickness. Benjamin is pretty smart. He's done more school than most of us and tends to know what he's talking about. Wednesday, November 14th. I'm in big trouble. I haven't got long to write. I can hear Mr. Grievous calling for me and he's in a real fury. I stole one of the machines from the basement. I took it from the box while everyone was cleaning up. I wanted to figure out what it was, but now Mr. Grievous must have noticed it's missing. The others are all saying he'll skin me alive. Maybe I should just make a break for it, but the front door is locked and only Mrs. Birchbark's key can open it. She keeps that key in a pocket in her coat, and she wears the coat all the time. When she leaves the house, she locks the door behind her, locking us in. What if there was a fire? The windows on the ground floor have bars, and the ones up here in the dormitory are too high off the ground. I guess I've got to face the music. I'll write more later if I survive. I survived. Mr. Grievous was angry, but not very scary. I think he's not as tough as he pretends to be. I had to give him the machine back and he gave me a few smacks about the ears. Then he took me down a flight of spiral stairs underneath the workshop and handed me a big brush. There was a big cast iron coal furnace down there and he made me climb up into the chimney to clean it out. That was my punishment. It was disgusting, scary work and now I'm covered in soot and black sludge. But I discovered a brilliant secret. The chimney branches into different sections, like an old twisted tree, and each section ends in a grate. I guess those grates are supposed to let the hot air into different parts of the house. They don't work very well, but when I was up in that chimney, I could see into every room in the orphanage, the kitchen, the hallway, a study with lots of books, the dining hall, our stinky dormitory, Mrs. Birchbark and Mr. Grievous' rooms. Then, at the very top of the chimney, is a nice-looking attic bedroom. I saw Simon in there. I rattled the grate and called his name, 
but he didn't wake up. He looks real bad. I think he'll be dead soon. Friday, November 16th. I've got good news and terrible news. First, the good. I figured out how to open the chimney grate from the dormitory side so I can get into the chimney whenever I want. I pried it open with a butter knife that I stole from the dining hall. The screws were so rusted they turned into a red dust and then the grate swung open on hinges. It's scary going in there because I can see the fire burning in the furnace at the bottom. If I fall, I'll be burned up quick as anything, but it's worth it. With a bit of work, I managed to get all the grates open. So now I can shimmy my way down to the ground floor and sneak into the kitchen for food. Sometimes I go to the study and just sit in the big leather armchair for a while. Sit somewhere without the stench of sickness and kids crying all the time. I like the study, with its fancy bookshelves and grandfather clock. I hid this journal on one of the shelves. The best hiding place for a book is with a bunch of other books, right? I'm in the study now, writing at this big oak desk with Mr. Grievous' fountain pen. I feel real important. If he finds out, he'll kill me, but he's not going to find out. I'm pretty good at opening the grates and closing them again behind me, as if I'd never been there at all. Now for the terrible part. Sometimes I climb all the way to the attic room and look in at Simon. Today I saw a strange woman sitting by Simon's bed. She wore a black cloak and her eyes were dark like the night. I didn't like the look of her one bit. She held out a glowing blue stone. It glowed dimly at first, and I thought I saw shadows swimming about inside it. As I watched, I saw something rising up out of Simon's body toward the stone. It didn't go easy. It looked like it was being dragged out of him that flickering ghostly thing. But it kept coming, a stream of bright blue. And as the stone fed, it grew brighter and brighter until it looked like sunlight. And by the end of it, Simon wasn't breathing anymore. The woman smiled, but not in a nice way. And before she left, she looked up at me, directly into my eyes. She couldn't see me. I knew she couldn't see me. It was dark as pitch in that chimney. But she looked at me nonetheless and nodded once. You're next, she seemed to say. Break open a bottle of William McGucket's beer tonic. 
Chuck a dash on your hands, work it into a deep lava, and apply it to your suit to become well-groomed self. Every hair back in place and smelling like a solid haymaker to the chops. Now get back to work painting the town red, you rascal. Made with 89% real slurid oil. Also suitable for use by bearded ladies. From the latest in male grooming products to part two of the Malifa Orphanage for Sick Children. Friday, November 23rd. Things are getting scary here. Mikey and Daphne have both been taken to the room in the attic. I know, because I've seen them there. With my face to the grate, I called out to them, which scared them after death. But Daphne recognised my voice and tiptoed up to the grate. How did you get in there, she said. But I told her it was top secret. Then I told her about the woman with the glowing stone that had sucked away Simon's life. You're just trying to scare us, said Daphne. But I think she knew I was telling the truth. I'm going to try to help you, I told her. I'm going to get us all out of here. Now I've just got to figure out how to do that. Monday, November 26th. I saw that lady again today. While Mr. Grievous was leading us down to the workshop, the lady in black was waiting in the hall. Oh, are these our young charges, she said when she saw us. Mr. Grievous made us all stand in a line while the woman inspected us. Very pleased to meet you all, she said, sounding nice, but I knew she was faking. Miss Dora is our benefactor, said Mr. Grievous. Without her, you'd all be out on the streets. Indeed, said the lady. But we're not going to let anything like that happen, are we, Mr. Grievous? Children like you are simply too precious. You may not realise it, but inside each one of you lies great potential, just waiting to be released. Don't forget that. This made me very angry. She thinks we're stupid. She thinks we don't know what she's talking about, but I know. She was probably going up right then and there to suck the life out of Mikey and Daphne with her evil stone. I could feel my hands burning, like they were about to catch fire. Tuesday, November 27th. Last night I snuck into the chimney again and peeked into the attic bedroom. Mikey was gone. Only Daphne was left, looking very pale. I rattled the grate and called her name, but she didn't wake up. She just let out a moan. I think it's too late to save her, but I have to tell the others. I'll tell them in the morning, and we can all escape together. Saturday, December 1st. I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. Maybe writing it all down will help me think it through, help me decide. It all began early this morning when Mr. Grievous called us down to the front hall. There's a nasty sickness going round, he said. So just to be safe, Dr. Lorcas is coming again to give you some more shots. I want you all to be on your best behaviour for the doctor. I could feel my hands getting hot, 
and I began to tremble. That's always what happens when I'm angry. It's what happened the night my parents died. I wanted to shout, to warn everyone not to let Dr. Lorcas touch him. I wanted to fight, but I just stood there trembling with my hands getting hotter and hotter. I stood there like a pathetic baby while the other kids were led to the infirmary one by one and came out crying with that black poison in their veins. Then it was my turn. Mr. Grievous pulled me through the door and Dr. Lorcas prepared the needle, grinning like a maniac. No, I managed to shout. No, I won't take it. Now, Wiggy, said Mr. Grievous, holding my arm tight. Dr. Lorcas just wants to make sure you don't get sick like the others. Poppycock, I yelled. I could feel the white-hot fury spilling out of me, exploding like a bottle full of oil thrown onto a fire. He means to kill us. You means to kill us all. Hold him down, said Dr. Lorcas quietly, still grinning. And Mr. Grievous grabbed my wrists with both hands. The fire began in my fingertips, but quickly spread to my palms. It spat and sparked, and then began to rage with flames that somehow did not burn me. My fists became angry balls of fire, and I grinned as Mr. Grievous screamed in pain. He pulled his hands away from me quickly. I could smell his flesh burning. What the devil, cried Dr. Lorcas. He was scared, and I reached for his face. I felt his monocle cracking with the sudden heat. His flesh melt away at my touch. Something very heavy hit me in the side. The last thing I remember was Mrs. Birchbark holding the heavy marble statue from the hall. After that, nothing for a long time. When I woke, I couldn't move. It was dark. And I wondered if Mrs. Birchbark had broken my spine and left me paralysed. But then I felt metal cuffs around my wrists and ankles. Mrs. Birchbark says you tried to kill Dr. Lorcas, came a voice from the darkness. Is it true? Who is that? I asked. Where am I? It's Bess, said the voice. They took us up to the attic. It's nice in here. We have proper beds and everything. They brought me here because I'm sick. They brought you here because... Bess, listen to me, I interrupted. We've got to get out of here. The woman in black will come and kill us. We have to escape. What happened to your mummy and daddy, Iggy? Bess asked. What? Weren't you listening? There's no time for that. We have to escape. I tried to wriggle my arms out of their restraints, but they were too tight. I heard you crying out for them in your sleep, said Bess. I heard her feet approaching, and then I felt her sit down on my bed near my feet. I know what it's like to miss your mummy and daddy. My mummy was a thief. She got taken away by the police. That's how I ended up here. Useless, I whispered. You're just a useless scaredy cat. But just as I said it, I felt a fumbling of fingers on my wrist, a clicking of a hairpin against metal, and then I felt the cuffs spring open. I've been picking locks in the dark almost as long as I've been picking my nose, said Bess. I jumped up laughing and gave Bess a hug. 
It's funny. I don't remember anyone ever hugging me before, but I knew how to do it, and it felt good. Bess trembled in my arms and nearly fell over when I let her go. My eyes were beginning to adjust to the dark by then. Can you open this door to get us out of here? I asked Bess. No, it's dead bolted from the outside. Her voice was very weak and sounded distant, as if she were a long way away. Never mind, I know another way. It was tricky in the dark, but I managed to push a bedside table against the wall and wrench the grate open with a good hard tug. It clanged open in a shower of rust. Climb in quickly, I said to Bess. The chimney will take us anywhere in the house. But just as I said that, I heard voices, feet clomping on stairs, a key in the lock. I thought about that moment a lot. Perhaps I should have stayed and fought. But I only had a second to decide, and panic made it impossible to think. I scrambled into the chimney and closed the grate behind me, just as Mr. Grievous burst into the room. He held a lantern, and I was blinded by the sudden light. What was that noise, he demanded. Then, looking shocked and furious, he said, Where's Iggy? How the dickens did he escape? Safe in the darkness of the chimney, I smiled to myself. But then I saw Bess clearly for the first time, and horror filled me. Until now, she'd just been a shadow in the darkness. But Mr. Grievous' lantern revealed a terrible sight. Her eyes and cheeks were sunken in, and her flesh was covered in dark, black splotches. The sickness was getting her. Bess, what happened to Wiggy? said Mr. Grievous. But just at that moment, she collapsed onto the floor. Mrs. Birchbark, yelled Mr. Grievous. Run and get Miss Dora. This one's on her last legs. She'll pay double for a nice young one like this. I hurried down the chimney and burst into the dormitory where the other kids were sleeping. I woke them all up, babbling in panic. I pleaded with them and I threatened them and I tried to talk sense into them, but they wouldn't listen. Joshua told me to stop scaring everyone. And then I felt the rage begin to kindle inside me and the shaking began. My hands got hot again. I thought about burning Joshua until he screamed, but I knew that wouldn't help. It would only turn the other kids against me. So I climbed back into the chimney and came down here to the study. I'm sitting here now with the big grandfather clock ticking away trying to calm down. And I don't know what to do. I have to do something. I have to save Bess. But how? Or should I just escape? But I don't know how to do that either. Wednesday, December 11th. I have a lot to write. I can't believe this book survived the fire. I found it under a pile of charred wood that might have once been the grandfather clock. I don't know why I came back here to the ruins. Maybe to find this book and to write this entry. Here's what happened that day. I climbed back up the chimney and I waited. 
the woman in black entered the room alone. I could hear Mr. Grievous and Mrs. Birchbark banging about the house, waking the other kids, trying to figure out where I'd gone. Joshua probably told on me, like the coward he is. Well, never mind about him. He got what he deserved. Bess was asleep, but her eyelids were flickering. The woman in black put a hand on Bess's forehead and pulled the eyelids open to check her pupils. She smiled her hideous smile and pulled out another one of those glowing stones from a pocket of her coat. Not long now, my pretty, she hissed. I wasn't sure whether she was talking to Bess or to the stone. The shaking had stopped by then. All I could feel was the fire in my hands and the smouldering anger in my heart. I kicked the grate right off its hinges and leapt into the room with a scream. My fists were fireballs and I hurled myself at the woman, reaching for her flesh, wanting to smell her burn. But before I could reach her, she looked at me. She didn't touch me. She didn't even raise her hands to defend herself. She just looked at me and I stopped dead. Her eyes were like mirrors, like pools of oil. I saw myself there, in her dark, glistening eyes, and I felt myself plunge into them, as if I were falling into deep, deep water. I was sitting in the basement of my old home, shivering and crying, calling for my parents. There was no response. They had left me alone again, without food or heat. I wondered how many days they would be gone this time. How many nights I would have to spend locked in that basement, shivering and hungry. I found the matches and old newspapers in a cupboard. I only made the fire to try and keep warm. But I was still taken away to Malifaux like a criminal. But then things twisted and changed. And I saw that this was a lie. I saw the truth reflected in Miss Dora's eyes. The truth that I'd always kept hidden, deep inside myself. My parents had come home that night, stinking of liquor and smoke. And when I tried to speak to them, my father screamed at me and my mother threw an empty bottle at my head. I made the fire, knowing they were passed out upstairs, knowing that they could barely stand, let alone run, knowing exactly what would happen. I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut. I crumpled to the ground at her feet, the fire dying from my hands. I suddenly felt very cold, unable to raise my head. I hated myself. And that thought filled me with disgust. I curled into a ball and began to cry like a baby. I knew the woman was smiling down at me. But I couldn't bring myself to look at her. I was too ashamed. Then I heard Bess let out a shuddering breath. It was such a feeble, pathetic sound. No more than a tiny gasp. And I knew that it might be her last. I looked up at last to see the woman holding that milky stone over Bess's body between her thumb and forefinger, ready to draw out her life. 
Now that I was no longer trapped by her gaze, I felt the warmth returning. But I was too weak to move. But then Bess moved with sad and furious energy. She slapped at the stone hard and fast, like a trap snapping shut. The woman gave a screech of shock, and as the stone flew from her hand, it arced across the room and landed with a crack in a tink on the uneven floorboards and rolled underneath the bedside dresser, coming to rest against the wainscoting. I saw a glimmer of a smile on Bess's lips. And then I saw that glimmer die, and I knew that it was over. The rage returned, fiercer and hotter than ever before. The fire blazed in my hands again, and I leapt at the woman, reaching for her eyes. She recovered quickly from her surprise, raising a boot to kick me in the chest. But I've been in too many schoolyard fights to fall for that. At the last moment, I ducked and went for her legs instead, throwing my whole weight at them. She was already off balance from the kick, and her knees crumpled beneath her. As she struggled to stand, I sent a pillar of flame into her, setting her coat and hair alight. She screamed again and opened her eyes wide, wide, wide. They were like the twin mouths of some grotesque beast roaring at me. I knew they would devour me if I looked into them, but I found myself unable to resist. I stared at my reflection, and I saw a scared, angry child laughing and crying as my family burned. And as her gaze forced its way into me, it unearthed another detail of that night that I'd always kept hidden. It wasn't just my parents who died in that burning house. My little sister was there as well. My innocent sister. I had murdered her too. The woman kicked me to the floor and fled from the room, her coat smouldering and smoking. The bedroom was ablaze. The flames of my anger had consumed the curtains and sheets, and Bess's bed had become a funeral pyre. I knew she was already dead, but I reached for her anyway, intending to drag her from the burning room. In my waking nightmare, I thought she was my sister, and I was being given one last chance to save her. But as I grabbed at her, I smelled her flesh charring at my touch. My hands still burned with rage. The more I tried to save her, the faster she burned. I abandoned Bess there and sprinted down the stairs in Miss Dora's wake. The fire was already spreading, creeping up the walls, down the banisters and crawling across the mouldering carpet. As I passed the dormitory door, I could hear the other kids screaming for help, but the door was locked tight. I left them to their fate. From the upper floors above, I heard a crash. The building was beginning to collapse as its supporting pillars turned to ash. The front door was locked when I reached it, but my hands blazed with rage as I reached for the knob and the metal melted under the heat. I forced my way out into the street. I've been living on the streets of Malifaux ever since. It's rained every day since the fire. A heavy, cold rain that drives the homeless under bridges and into the catacombs and sewers beneath the city. But my anger keeps me warm. Had it not been for that rain, the fire would have spread to the nearby buildings. I wish it had.
It would make me happy if everyone in this city burned, cleansed of its million sicknesses. The woman in black watches me. I see her from time to time, lurking in the shadows, with her eyes like oil slicks, her sickening smile. I don't know what she wants from me. I don't hate her anymore. She is cruel and twisted, like everything in this world. I don't know why I returned to the wreckage of the Malafo orphanage for sick children tonight. Maybe I wanted to find the charred corpses of Mrs. Birchbark and Mr. Grievous. Confirmation that they had perished in the flames. Maybe I wanted to find Bess's bones and lay them to rest. The only thing I found amidst the wreckage was this diary. My story written down in blue ink on blackened pages. A record of my past that refused to burn with the rest of it. Thank you.